Is your daily grind getting you down? A Thermospas hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful, soothing jets, and all your stress seems to melt away, like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better, too. Call 877-861-4672 now. And for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. This episode was heard by patrons first. Patrons get all episodes ad-free and so many more fun perks. If you'd like to join, hit the link in our show notes or visit patreon.com slash the murder diaries pod. See you there. Welcome back to another episode of The Murder Diaries. I'm Paige. And I'm Natalie. Today's case takes us to Tuesday, July 19th, 2016. It began as any other day for 20-year-old Sierra Joggin, or C as those close to her called her. She spent the day at home before heading off to visit her boyfriend, Josh, in the earlier evening. She said goodbye to her mom, hopped on her, new to her purple bicycle that she got at a garage sale in order to enjoy the fresh country air while she rode the seven miles to Josh's house. When Sierra was ready to return home around 6.30, she hopped back on her bike and Josh followed alongside in his motorcycle. The two even took a selfie as they rode, capturing the memory of a fun summer night. At about 6.45 p.m., Sierra and Josh are on County Road 6, and she tells Josh that she's good to go to ride the rest of the way home on her own. A quick kiss goodbye and the two parted ways there on Metamora, Ohio's County Road 6. That was the last time Sierra was seen alive. This is her story. You still think it's in my head But I'm walking with the dead Sierra Catherine Joggin was born February 11, 1996 in Sylvania, Ohio, which sits to the west of Toledo. Sierra was kind and had a great sense of humor. She was the kind of person who could light up a room when she entered. Her mom describes her as an all-American girl and the center of everybody's world. Her Aunt Tara says that she brought a lot of joy and happiness to her family's life. She was a confident and comfortable person in her mom's words. At 5'5 five, five and 130 pounds, Sierra was also very athletic. She loved horses, and in high school, she played volleyball. After graduating from Metamora, Ohio's Evergreen High School in 2014, Sierra went on to play intramural volleyball at University of Toledo, where she was studying human resource management. She was also a member of University of Toledo's co-ed business fraternity, Alpha Kappa Psi. On top of all of that, Sierra had a part-time job at her uncle's metal stamping business, where she planned to work after she graduated. Another huge part of Sierra's life was her boyfriend of several years, Josh. The pair had known each other since they were seven. Sierra's aunt Tara had a stepson who quickly became one of Sierra's best friends. His other best friend was none other than Josh. So thus, the two were introduced at the tender age of seven. In Tara's victim impact statement, she explains that Sierra, Josh, and her stepson were the three amigos sharing a bond that was so amazing. As time moved forward, the three grew up, and Sierra and Josh started seeing each other in a different, more romantic light, and they began to date as freshmen at Evergreen High School. They were both well-liked and were even on homecoming court together. We were able to find a picture of Sierra and Josh with their homecoming royalty sashes on, and we'll make sure to include that in the Instagram post for this episode. Needless to say, Josh and Sierra were inseparable, and they had even begun to talk about marriage once they were done with college. And now a word from today's 
Is your daily grind getting you down? A Thermospas hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful soothing jets and all your stress seems to melt away like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better but sleep better too. Call 877-861-4672 now and for a limited time save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. Is your daily grind getting you down? A Thermospas hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful soothing jets and all your stress seems to melt away like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better but sleep better too. Call 877-861-4672 now and for a limited time save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. That's why July 19th was like any other day to Sierra and her mom, Sheila. Sierra headed off around 5 p.m. to go see Josh on that bike, and her mom said goodbye and went off to a night class that she was attending. Sheila arrived back home from the class at around 9.30 p.m., and she did notice pretty quickly that it was obvious that Sierra wasn't home, but she wasn't too worried yet. Again, Sierra spent a lot of time with Josh, and she was thinking that maybe she just stayed late with Josh, like she often did. But panic really set in when Josh called Sheila about an hour later asking if Sierra was home yet. He had called and texted her since the two had parted ways on County Road 6, but he had not been able to get in touch with her. This was obviously very unusual. Sheila says her breath caught in her throat when Josh told her Sierra had left his house before 7 p.m., more than three hours earlier. She immediately turned to everyone that she knew, and she posted an urgent plea on Facebook. She hoped that maybe Sierra had stopped by another friend's house on her way home, but no one else had seen or heard from Sierra since before she had left Josh's earlier that evening. Sheila continued her search by calling local hospitals, but by midnight, with no word from Sierra and not being able to find her, she calls the police and reports Sierra missing. Officers responded quickly and the search for Sierra began immediately. With much of the legwork contacting friends and family already having been done by Sheila, the police were able to focus on Josh, the last person known to have seen Sierra. Josh told officers that the two hung out that evening and when Sierra wanted to go home around 6.30, they rode around the local roads and cornfields and he even showed them the Snapchat photos and videos of Sierra smiling as they rode together. He told officers that around 6.45 that night, Sierra said that she was ready to go home and he was still following her on her motorcycle for part of the way, but that they separated around Evergreen High School on County Road 6. This is not that far from where Sierra lived, and nobody was thinking that she wouldn't be safe for the reminder of her half-mile ride home. Of course, a big part of the search for Sierra was a ground search, and it started at the intersection where Josh and Sierra had parted ways. This County Road 6 that Josh and Sierra had ridden on was lined by cornfields, and very quickly an officer noticed a disturbance in one of the uniform rows of corn. It was almost as if the corn had been run over. The broken stalks formed a path that was wider than a person, but narrower than a car. The officer got out of his patrol car and walked through the broken stalks. As he checked out the area, he was hit by the scent of gasoline. And as he went deeper into the cornfield, he found a fuse box and a pair of sunglasses. And then there it was, Sierra's beloved new purple bike. Looking closely, he saw blood on the handles and the seat of the bike. To the side of the bike was a seemingly out-of-place green sock and a screwdriver that had some blood on the handle. 
with the discovery of these items, the police concluded that a struggle had definitely taken place and Sierra had likely been abducted. With that realization, officers tried to track Sierra down using the GPS function of her cell phone and her Fitbit. The Fitbit tracker didn't show up anything, but her phone pinged close by where the bike was found. Unfortunately, though, it didn't lead them to Sierra. Ohio State Police were called in to support the search, and a helicopter equipped with infrared vision was used. Frustratingly, though, it also didn't turn up any signs of Sierra. The area where Sierra's bike and all those items were found was cordoned off and was processed like a crime scene. Police were hoping to find more evidence that would point to a potential assailant. Not far from the break in the cornrows, they found what looked like tire impressions. And they noticed these tire impressions would have been left from a two-wheeled vehicle, larger than a bike. Like a motorcycle. The tire tread was indeed a match for a motorcycle. And the search who was ever driving that motorcycle heightened when just a few hours later, a local farmer actually called and he reported that his son had just found a motorcycle helmet on the road not far from the scene of Sierra's abduction. Police took custody of that helmet, and when it was examined, they noticed what they thought looked like blood on the inside and outside of this helmet. This doesn't sound so great for Josh, who we know was riding a motorcycle, and he is the last person to have seen Sierra alive. But, you know, I don't want to jump to conclusions just yet. This definitely made officers check into Josh even more. He had, again, already admitted to traveling along Sierra on this motorcycle that night before. And like you said, he was the last person to see her before she went missing. So police head back over to his home and they say, hey, we've got this random motorcycle helmet. Can you show me yours? And Josh did understand that they had a job to do. And even though they didn't have a warrant, he allowed them to search his house and they went through his clothes and he even allowed them to take a closer look at his motorcycle and his truck. In this search, they found a pair of bloody overalls. Josh explained with no issue that these were hunting overalls and that's why they were bloody. The blood was tested and it was confirmed to have been from an animal. Also in the search, of course, they looked at Josh's motorcycle helmet and it was with him. This meant that obviously the one on the side of the road was pretty unlikely to have been his. With that, Josh was cleared as a suspect. It was clear as well to all those around that he was devastated about Sierra's disappearance. Josh told officers that he would have never hurt her. They were going to get married one day and he would do anything to help them find Sierra. Josh also shared some more information with officers. He recalled for them how he'd seen a white van that was driving really strangely on the road near the scene. As the van was driving, it slowed down. But then as Josh got closer to it on his motorcycle, it would speed up. And this happened a number of times. So Josh committed the license plate to memory. Police looked into that license plate and it matched to a local woman. When she was questioned, she stated that she thought someone was trying to run her off the road that night. She agreed to let the officers take a look at the van, and right then and there, they did. There was no sign of any blood or Sierra, and the woman and her van were cleared. Two days have now passed since Sierra's gone missing. Locals and officers have spent hours searching on foot and around different properties for any sign of Sierra. There were dozens of tips by this point, too, of different types of suspicious behavior. A couple of rewards were also out, ranging from $25,000 to $100,000. This is all thanks to locals and Sierra's family. As part of the search for Sierra, locals were canvassed about whether or not they recalled anything weird or out of the ordinary from that night, July 19th. 
While most said that they hadn't seen or heard anything unusual that night, one man who lived less than two miles from the cornfield where the bike was found had a story to tell. He invited officers into his home and he told them that that night his motorcycle had broken down, not far from where the break in the cornfield was. He said he called his brother to see if he could come pick him up and that's when he noticed the break in the corn stalks. He walked into the area and he found two bikes discarded in the field. The man says that he took one of those two bicycles and decided to ride it home instead of having his brother come pick him up. Once home, he says he grabbed his van and went back to pick up his motorcycle. Interestingly, he also told officers that he lost a couple of items in that breakdown, and it just so happens to be the same items that match those that were found in the break of the cornfield. This man was very clear, though. He said to officers, I didn't steal anything or kill anyone. It was also marked on the police report documenting this interaction that the man had bruises on his legs. While it was strange, unfortunately, none of this information brought them any closer to finding Sierra, though. So what did investigators decide to do next? Well, they decided it was time to call in support from the FBI. The FBI did join the search, and using their resources, they were able to search databases that provided the names of any known violent offenders in the area. Local police had already carried out a similar search on their system when she went missing, but it returned no hits. And honestly, they just don't have the same type of databases. Anyways, I digress. The man on the violent offenders list that the FBI was interested in was James Worley. This just so happens to also be the same guy that was telling the officers the story about his motorcycle breaking down near the break in the cornfields. This obviously piqued officers' interest, and their interest peaked even more when a witness came forward to say that they had seen a van speeding in the area the night of July 19th. The description of the van was different to the van that Josh had reported, and the witness had also been able to get the license plate number. So they ran it, and guess who it was registered to? James Worley. Yes. As soon as the match came up, officers returned to question him again. This time, he was acting more strange and agitated when local police had first spoken to him. He demanded that his motorcycle helmet be returned, but the officers noticed it had what looked like blood on it, and they took it to be examined. Despite James's apparent irritation at this request being denied, he did allow investigators to walk around his property without a warrant. Now, James lived with his mother and brother on roughly one acre of land, and this land also housed a number of barns. James was known to use one of these barns as a bit of a motorcycle repair shop. Investigators, of course, looked through these barns as they searched the property. And when they got to the barn that was used as a workshop, that's what it looked like. Looked like he worked on motorcycles and other types of vehicles. Nothing too unusual besides James's behavior when they were inside that barn. The episode of Living a Nightmare about this case that we used as a resource for this episode has some clips of James at this time. And when I tell you he wouldn't stop talking, he would not stop talking. He was telling officers about his barn and the bikes he had worked on. And he just went into a lot of detail about just everything that officers were looking at. The odd behavior increased as investigators got closer to the back of the barn. As they continued to walk around, one of the investigators noticed that it looked like an area of dirt had just been freshly raked, but it's underneath a pile of hay bales. So they move the bales to the side, and that's when they find a green wooden crate. Inside that box were multiple pairs of women's underwear, and at least one had blood on it. 
As soon as officers had made this discovery of this green wooden crate, James tried to shut down the search, and he was trying to tell them to get off his property. However, things were not about to go James's way because officers had seen enough at the property to secure a warrant on the spot. With that, James was taken down to the station, and the search of his property continued. All of the hay bales were removed from above that raked area of dirt, and investigators discovered a host of disturbing items. There was duct tape, rope, a trash bag that had adult diapers in it, and behind the haystacks was an air mattress. And buried in the floor of the barn, they discovered a huge chest freezer that had been lined with carpet and smelled of bleach, as if it had been recently cleaned. That's not all. They cracked open that green crate, and inside they found bondage items like restraints, more diapers, clothesline cords, latex gloves, socks, a pink sex toy, and women's lingerie. There was also a used piece of duct tape. It had a straw attached to it, and there was dirt and hair stuck in the adhesive. Also inside James' workshop, they found handcuffs, zip ties, a bottle of bleach, and more adult diapers. By the way, this property had cameras all over it. Some of these cameras were easy to see, and other cameras were concealed in and amongst items in the rafters of the barns and places like that. This is starting to sound more and more like a torturous sex dungeon. And not the kind that involves consent. By the way, we haven't even gotten to his car yet. James actually owned two vehicles, and at least one of those was a pickup truck. Investigators found that the bed of the pickup truck was wet, even though it hadn't been raining recently. They look a little further into the cab of the truck, and they found pepper spray, a ski mask, duct tape, and 24-inch long zip ties. I know I just went over a lot of different things that they found in different areas of James's property, but we do know that the one thing that they didn't discover was Sierra, despite all of the concerning paraphernalia, there was no sign of her or any of her belongings. Down at the station, James was busy denying knowing even who Sierra was or having ever met her. He reiterated his story about his motorcycle breaking down that day and losing his personal effects there in the cornfield that way. But as word of what had been discovered at James's property made its way down to the station, James had to answer for himself. He had to come up with an explanation for this disturbing collection of items. And with that, he claimed that these items were just props for a new porn studio he was setting up. The air mattress, that was for camping. The zip ties, those were for hunting. He seemed to have an answer for everything. It's around this time that cell phone records came back and they showed that James's phone pinged in the area where Sierra's bike was found for more than two hours on the night of the 19th. That definitely doesn't fit James' story. He said he left his bicycle to go get his van. Not that he stood around for two hours. Police knew this didn't make sense either. So on that day, three days after Sierra's disappearance, the same day all of the discoveries were made on James' property, James was arrested for her abduction. Lest you forgot, James was on that violent offender list when the FBI made their search. He attempted to abduct someone before, decades before Sierra, and the case is eerily similar. The survivor Robin bravely tells her story on an episode of Buried in the Backyard. We have that season and episode number in the show notes. We really encourage you to go listen to it in Robin's own words. But here's the gist. Just like Sierra, Robin Gardner loved to ride her bike. In 1990, she was 26 years old and living about 20 miles from where Sierra did. On the 4th of July, 1990, she was riding her bike along the road and she was struck by a vehicle. She was knocked off her bike and thrown into a ditch. 
the vehicle that hit her stopped, as one would hope, but that's where the good ends. James, the driver, gets out of the car and asks if she's okay. She says yes. And then she's struck in the head with a hammer and a screwdriver was held to her throat. She was told that she would be killed if she didn't get into his truck. Once they were inside the truck, James put a handcuff on her wrist and tried to get one on the other. Robin fought and fought. While the struggle was going on, a motorcycle driver realized that there was a commotion going on in the truck as he passed. They stopped to investigate. Robin screamed, and with the other driver now confronting James, she managed to escape from the truck. The motorcycle driver then took her home, and she received medical attention for a fractured skull and concussion. James was then arrested and sentenced four to ten years in jail before being eligible for parole. But he ended up being released after serving just three years. Here's a little bit of Robin in her own words relating to Sierra's case. I know what it feels like to be in his arms and hear his yelling and hear his expletives and hear his hatred toward women. Now back to the search for Sierra. Remember, James has already been arrested and charged in relation to Sierra's case at this point, but they still didn't have Sierra. Dogs were brought into the property to search, but that didn't turn up Sierra either. All the while, James is still denying any involvement in Sierra's disappearance. Then finally, at 6 p.m., the day James was arrested, a volunteer was driving down a country road just a few miles southwest of James' property. They noticed there another row of corn had been knocked over. They got out of the car to take a closer look. They saw what appeared to be drag marks in the dirt. Right where the drag marks ended, there was a latex glove. The volunteer then notified investigators of what they had found, and the area was cordoned off for a search. Within just one hour, they found a three-foot section of ground where the corn was missing. The dirt there also showed evidence of having been recently disturbed. They excavated the small area, and there they found Sierra buried under two feet of dirt. She was found with her wrists handcuffed behind her back. Her ankles were bound and then tied together with the wrist restraints. In her mouth was a large yellow rubber gag, and she was wearing an adult diaper. An autopsy would later show that Sierra's cause of death was asphyxiation, most likely due to the gag in her mouth. A precise time of death was unfortunately not able to be determined, but the official record declares that Sierra's time of death was 9 p.m. on the day that she was found. With Sierra's remains found, James received more charges, including aggravated murder, kidnapping, felonious assault, abduction, tampering with evidence, and abuse of a corpse. A mountain of DNA evidence was tested, and it all tied James to Sierra's murder. This included the blood that was found on his motorcycle helmet, which was Sierra's. DNA on the latex glove found in the cornfield matched both Sierra and James. Sierra's DNA was also identified on the piece of used duct tape I described with the dirt and hair. It was also found on zip ties, pepper spray, and a ski mask found on James' property. Despite this overwhelming evidence, but possibly not surprising, James still pled not guilty to all charges. The case thus went to trial, and prosecutors were asking for the death penalty. The trial began in 2018, almost two years after Sierra's murder. From the outset, the prosecution set to prove that James was a sadistic and narcissistic murderer, and if he was set free, he would surely kill again. You've heard about the DNA and this creepy dungeon, but let's talk just briefly about James. He was born in 1959 in Tacoma, Washington, before his family moved to Ohio, and his childhood was far from stable. 
After James' first arrest in regards to Robin's case, he was assessed by a forensic clinical psychologist who diagnosed him with depression, low self-esteem, paranoia, and narcissism. During this time, James revealed to his court-mandated therapist that he, quote, learned from each abduction he had done and the next one he was going to bury. This has led many to wonder if anyone else was hurt by James in between Robin and Sierra during those two and a half decades, but we're left to wonder. During the trial, James's browsing history was brought up. It was revealed that he'd searched for hogtied teen, rape, gag, hitchhiker, and forced, among many more explicit terms. Some of those searches were from long ago, but many had occurred in the hours before Sierra was abducted. The prosecution also took time during the trial to lay out a timeline of the hours leading up to Sierra's abduction and murder, holding that after spending an afternoon on pornography sites, James went out on his motorcycle and came across Sierra. He followed her and ran her off the road, just like he had done with Robin all those years earlier. After stopping, he hit her over the head with his motorcycle helmet to subdue her. Then he hid in the cornfield with her for two hours until it got dark enough that he could return home and swap his motorcycle for his van. He then put Sierra in his van and took her to his dungeon. There, he tied her up and gagged her. She then asphyxiated on that rubber gag, and James then buried her body in the middle of the cornfield where she was later found. James' defense tells a different story, though. They claim that the evidence presented by the prosecution was circumstantial. They reiterated the story about James's motorcycle breaking down and that that's why his items were found there. They further claimed that it couldn't have been James because a witness described seeing a man wearing red shorts in the area that day. They were attempting to use this as proof that it wasn't James because there was never any red shorts found on his property. The defense also reiterated the idea that this was some pornography studio that he was trying to build and that that's why he had all that creepy stuff in there. They also tore into claims by the medical examiner that the injuries to Sierra's head were caused by a motorcycle helmet. They said that mm, it could have been made by any number of other, you know, blunt objects, if you will. Despite the defense's best efforts, after just two days of deliberations on March 27th, 2018, the jury returned a guilty verdict on all but two counts. Furthermore, they agreed with the recommendation of the prosecution that James received the death penalty. On April 16th, 2018, at his sentencing, James gave a 45-minute statement to the court. He continued to feign his innocence and claimed that he'd been framed. He spoke directly to Sierra's family and called her a beautiful girl, going on to say her loss was a substantial blow to everyone. It was at this point that Sierra's family got up and walked out of the courtroom. Ultimately, on that April day, James was sentenced to death. His execution is scheduled for May 20th, 2025. In the wake of their grief, Sierra's family launched a petition calling for the establishment of a violent offenders registry, one that local law enforcement can access. They argued that if local law enforcement had such a database they could use, that it wouldn't have taken until the FBI got involved to get the right resources. The petition was successful. It received an excess of 13,000 signatures, and it garnered wide support from legislators. In 2018, Sierra's law became official. While each state in the union can choose what violations qualify a person to be listed on the registry, most will include murder, kidnapping, and abduction, as well as conspiracy to commit those crimes. The same group that supported Sierra's family in establishing Sierra's law also created Sierra Strong, a nonprofit that teaches self-defense classes to children 6 to 15 years old in schools. You can donate, volunteer, or even become a certified teacher for Sierra Strong at justiceforsierra.org. 
Coupled with Sierra's law becoming official, her family also was awarded James's property. It was awarded to them as settlement in a wrongful death lawsuit with James. More importantly, this meant that Sierra's family gained the control they so deserved. They were able to give permission to authorities to carry out further searches of the property. In 2020, the FBI brought in excavators to the property, but so far nothing has been released about what they did or didn't find. Soon after the excavators, the search was finished and Sierra's mom tore down all the structures on the property. Sierra's family, Josh, and her friends are left to continue their lives without Sierra's bright light. Her Aunt Tara's incredibly courageous impact statement is an example of what her family has been going through. It's kind of long. It's six minutes. So feel free to skip ahead, but I wanted you guys to have a chance to hear it too. Here it is. Your Honor, my name is Tara Ice and I am Sierra's aunt. Sierra is a bright, shining light that will never burn out. To explain to you the impact that she had on my life is simply impossible. From the moment she was born, I couldn't get enough of her. I was 16 when she was born, and it could have gone two ways. First being that the house would never be quiet again, and studying would be hard. And second being I would never be able to sleep in again, which is important to any teenager. To my surprise, those were the two things I loved and cherished most about Sierra's youngest year. <laughs> First thing in the morning, I could hear her tiny little voice saying, Mom, I'm up, Mom. I want candy. I would giggle in bed at how much I love this little girl that stole all of our hearts. As she got older, we would have sleepovers at my place, and we would eat kettle corn and giggle all night. She always had a way of expressing herself and telling these never-ending stories. I would give anything to hear another story or have another sleepover. I met my husband and he brought two amazing boys into my life. Little did I know that Sierra and my oldest son, Nick, who was a month older than her, would become best friends. She traveled on most all of our family vacations and I still just couldn't get enough time with her. She met her true love, Josh, at the tender age of seven when Nick introduced his two best friends to each other. They soon became the three amigos and shared a bond that was so amazing. Because of a selfless, selfish act by a rookie offender, we will not hear her infectious laugh. We will not have those special family vacations. We will not see her walk down the aisle or have babies of her own. Her dreams of studying abroad and traveling the world will never come true because of this repeat offender. We had to celebrate Sierra's 21st birthday as a group without her here on earth. The holidays are more quiet and somber and will never be the same. We light a candle to remember her spirit, but the light of that candle has nothing on Sierra. She would light up a room just by smiling. We have all this pain and loss because of a selfish person who thought he would get away with it. I quote the defendant on an audio recording saying, the proof is in the pudding. He's absolutely right. 
I'm so thankful that the jurors were able to see through his lies and clearly see the proof in the pudding. I will never forget James Worley for what he did. This heartless individual was sick enough to want to watch the life and the light drain out of Sierra. He thought he had the power to take her life from us, but he was mistaken. Her light can never be dimmed. Her light shines brighter today than it ever has before. Sierra has done more good and positively touched more people's lives in her short 20 years on earth than most people do in their entire life. Not only did he take Sierra away from us, but he took away our family as we knew it. I have to watch the pain in my sister's eyes and the heartbreak of losing her firstborn child. I have to watch my niece not be able to have sleepovers because of her fear of being away from home. I have to watch the pain and despair in my parents as they struggle to understand how this could happen in the town they both grew up in and felt safe in. I have to try to explain to my young daughters why Sierra won't be coming home and that the boogeyman really does exist. I watch as my boys try to find their way in life while questioning everything because how could this happen to her? The pain is excruciating and the depth of emptiness we feel is unexplainable. However, I want him to know this. It may seem that he has broken us, but we as a family are stronger than he thinks. And because we were lucky enough to have had Sierra's love, we're unbreakable. James Worley has long demanded that his human rights should be respected all the while knowing that he had so callously dismissed Sierra's right to live. His jail records prove that he is a repeat offender and has no respect for authority. His demeanor in court proves that he has no remorse for what he did to Sierra, much less to all of those who loved and knew her. Our family has to spend the rest of our lives with the reality that Sierra will never be coming home all because the heartless, cold-blooded decisions of James Worley let James spend the rest of his life paying for these decisions. Thank you. Until next time, be sure to follow us on our socials at the Murder Diaries Pod and check out our Patreon for more Murder Diaries content. And don't forget, stay safe. Bye. Is your daily grind getting you down? A Thermospas hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful, soothing jets, and all your stress seems to melt away, like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better, too. Call 877-861-4672 now, and for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.